Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. The Republican Party's 2020 primary season has been pretty straightforward. President Trump has no serious competition for the Republican nomination. But for the Democrats, it's much less clear who will become their party's nominee for president of the United States. With so many candidates competing to define the future of the Democratic Party and running on a range of ideologies, it's been a pretty heated presidential primary season. Candidates have strived to boost their potential and their profile by winning early voting states. But those states offer a very small portion of the total delegates needed to secure the nomination. But things change a bit on Super Tuesday, which falls on March 3rd this year. On Super Tuesday, the most states at a time hold nominating contests. The most voters have a chance to go to the polls, and the most delegates will be allotted to the candidates. More than a third of all delegates for the Democratic National Convention are up for grabs on this day alone. But how are these delegates allocated? Why is it so complicated? What role do super delegates play in the math of it all? And despite recent dropouts from Pete Buttigieg and Tom Steyer, the Democratic primary field is still quite large, and therefore delegates may be broadly split among candidates. So what happens if no candidate wins the majority of delegates needed to become the nominee at the party's convention in July? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. And in this episode, what it takes to get there. I'm Allison Michaels. To learn the nitty gritty of how this delegate nomination process works, I turn to Elaine Kmark. I'm a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of Primary Politics, Everything You Need to Know About How America Nominates Its Presidential Candidates, and it is in its third edition. Elaine has been studying the primary process for years. I asked her to explain why is the Democratic nomination process quite so complicated? Well, let me just let me just start by saying it's not only the Democratic nomination process. The Republican process is basically the same and complicated also. So uh, you're just that this year we're seeing the Democrats have a have a nomination race. It is complicated because it is a combination of an old system and a new system. Up until 1968 and through 1968, the nomination process in both political parties in America was for well more than 100 years, from 1831 to 1968, controlled by party officials meeting in a convention. There were very few primaries, and those primaries tended to be meaningless in terms of delegates. And then the Democratic Party went through a reform movement that kind of reformed the Republican Party as well and somewhat inadvertently. And we ended up with a lot of primaries. So what we have now is a mix. We have primaries selecting delegates. The delegates are going to an old-fashioned convention, but they're getting there 
in a different way. They used to get there by virtue of their party office or their elected office, and now they get there as a result of primaries. Can you explain what changed in 1968 that led to this reformation of the process? Sure. In 1968, the Democratic Party and the whole country, in fact, was split in two over the Vietnam War. And there were candidates like Senator Eugene McCarthy and then later Senator Bobby Kennedy who were against Lyndon Johnson's pursuit of the Vietnam War. Most of the delegates to the 68 convention had been handpicked by party leaders in the states, and they were loyal to Lyndon Johnson. And then when he dropped out of the race, they were loyal to Hubert Humphrey, his vice president. And this infuriated people. They thought that there was just simply no way to get into the nomination process. And therefore, if some of your listeners want to go to YouTube, you can easily find lots of footage of the riots, really, outside the convention hall in Chicago that year and the near riots inside the convention hall that year. And so when the dust settled, the party established a commission to look at the way it elected delegates to conventions. And that commission ended up changing the whole process dramatically. So what was changed to help more reflect the will of the voters? The, the process that came into being in 1972 and has existed more or less with, with variations since then established something that is not common in most American elections. Most American elections are winner-take-all. The process that the Democrats implemented in 72 said that candidates and delegates should fairly reflect the will of the voters in primaries. And so what the Democrats established was a proportional representation system for delegates going to the convention. And that was new not just for the Democratic Party, but that was new really in American politics. All right. So I want to talk a little bit more about today and how this process is working right now. I read this great quote from Seth Borenstein at the Associated Press that said, the race for the Democratic nomination starts out like a sporting event and finishes more like an accountant's ledger. Does that sound about right to you? (laughs) (laughs) That is a great quote. And yes, um, it does. Because in the first early states, the campaigns are really doing one-on-one retail politics. You know, if you look, they're, they're meeting citizens in community centers and in restaurants, and it's, it, it is very much like an old-fashioned campaign. When Once we move into Super Tuesday and beyond, the campaign turns into really a television campaign. There might be a town hall or there might be a, you know, a rally or something. But basically, what are the candidates doing? They're going from TV studio to TV studio and radio studio to radio studio, um, trying to get five minutes on drive time, you know, to try to get the attention of millions of people. And that's a very, very different. The metric that emerges from that is counting delegates. Are they winning enough delegate slots 
to conceivably have a shot at winning the nomination. And so it, it will start to look a little bit more like an accountant than uh, a sporting event. <laughs> and to drill down on the specifics, how are delegates assigned to each state? Delegates are assigned to each state on a combination of factors, one obviously being population. The bigger states have more delegates. But the other factor is their past democratic performance. So you will take the votes of, say, Michigan in the last three presidential elections and establish an average, which along with their population will give them a certain number of delegates. So obviously, very, very Republican states don't have as many delegates as very Democratic states. And how does the vote then determine the allocation of those delegates to each candidate? Well, those are determined by congressional district. So, for instance, most congressional districts have either four or five, sometimes six delegates. A very Republican district in the Democratic Party will have only two or three delegates. A very Democratic uh, district can have as many as eight or nine delegates. The vote in the primary will be calculated by congressional district. And then there's a formula for awarding delegates. So, you know, if you have a four-delegate district, and let's say that Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden are running very close to each other in that district, the split might be two and two. If you have a five-delegate district and two people are running close to each other, the split could be three and two. So it's it's all done in a formula. It sounds terribly complicated. It Believe me, in the days before everybody had computers and spreadsheets, it was very complicated. Uh, these days, the networks have this all, you know, put into their systems. And as soon as we get decent results, you'll be able to calculate the delegate split. Here's an important p- thing to remember a lot of people don't realize. The early primaries, for instance, the March primaries, most of them will be allocating delegates to presidential candidates. But the actual people who will fill those slots oftentimes won't be elected till May or or June even. So we will have, in some instances, delegate slots, but no actual people in those slots for a couple more months. And the idea is that those people will then go on to reflect the voters' wishes and nominate the candidate that they're assigned to at the convention. Yeah. One of the big contentious issues in the modern nominating system has been whether or not delegates are free agents, you know, able to vote who they think is best, or whether they are bound by the results of the primary. And it's a, it's a little bit like, you know, a, a member of Congress, right? I mean, there's two ways of thinking about representation. We send a congresswoman off to vote her best judgment, or we send her off to vote what we would vote as the voters. The delegates is sort of the same situation. Now, In the Democratic Party, the rule says that delegates shall, in all good conscience, vote for the winner of the primary, okay, or whoever 
they were elected to represent. And I think that that's, that has been the rule since the 1984 convention. And it's pretty good because what it basically says is, look, the expectation is that if you get elected as a Bernie Sanders delegate, you're going to go to the convention in Milwaukee and you are going to vote for Bernie Sanders. However, it does allow for people to change their minds, particularly if new information comes out. And that's important in a system that starts in February and ends in June. Lots of things can change during that period of time. And so there is some flexibility in terms of the role the delegates have. Have we seen that before, though? Have delegates gone rogue? Uh, yeah, once in a while they do. We, we haven't seen it in large enough numbers that it was of consequence. But, you know, from time to time, like in 2012, you on the Republican side, there were some Rand Paul supporters who got elected in Mitt Romney delegate slots. And that they tried to, you know, make a difference on some platform issues, et cetera. There weren't very many. It obviously didn't impact the eventual nomination. But, you know, it was, it was frankly a problem for Romney. So, you know, we have seen people, particularly if the campaign isn't watching, we have seen supporters of another candidate try and get elected in somebody else's slot. How do you get elected to a delegate slot? Who are these people? Most of the time, the people go to a congressional district convention or a state convention, and they have to bring along lots of friends and lots of family, okay, in order to get elected. And that's very grassroots. It's very participatory. People fight hard for these slots. And most most people who get elected as delegate slots are activists in their communities who have somewhat of a profile. Could be somebody who's in the teachers' union. It could be somebody who's in labor union. Could be someone in the Democratic Party. You know, it, it varies. But usually these are people who are community leaders in some way. And what about superdelegates? What makes them super? How are they different from, from your standard delegate? <laughs> the superdelegates are delegates by virtue of the office they hold. And they are not bound by the results of the primaries in their state. So one of the unintended consequences of the reforms that happened was that at the 1980 convention, people realized that there were very few senators or congressmen or governors on the floor of the convention. And people thought, given how contentious it was, that, frankly, they ought to have been there. One of the reasons they weren't there is that suppose you're a congressman and you want to have good relations in your district. You, you certainly don't want to make your party activists mad. Well, one of the ways that you could sort of make them mad was showing up at the congressional district convention and taking one of the delegate slots. So congressmen particularly were disincentivized to go for these slots and consequently weren't at the convention. Now, given that in our democratic system, the president rules with Congress, okay, not over Congress, it's kind of important to get along with the people you're going to govern with. Mm -hmm. And so the decision was made to simply make people who have certain offices delegates to the convention by virtue of their office. 
Now, in all of this, there's another complication. Given that some candidates have have dropped out, I found it interesting to learn that delegates pledged to a candidate who has dropped out can actually act differently based on the state that those delegates are from. So in some states, delegates have to vote for the pledged candidate anyway, even if they're not in the race anymore. In other states, delegates get to decide for themselves at the convention who they want to vote for. And then in other states, delegates have to vote for whomever their originally pledged candidate eventually endorses. So if, for example, Tom Steyer goes on to endorse someone like Joe Biden, then Steyer's originally pledged delegates would have to vote for Joe Biden. So things are sort of bound to get a little bit crazy. But after all of this is squared away, how many delegates do you actually need to win the nomination? You need 1,991 delegates to win the nomination on a first ballot. You need more than that to win the nomination on a second ballot because the superdelegates only vote on the second ballot. So if no one wins on the first ballot, approximately 771 people will then be added to the total in the convention, and you will need a majority of those people. So if nobody wins a majority on the first ballot, then it goes to a second ballot and the superdelegates then add their votes in. But the Sanders camp has been arguing that the person with the most votes should win the first ballot, even if they don't have a majority. What I don't exactly understand is how exactly that can be up for debate. Are the rules concrete around this? What do they say? The rules are absolutely concrete that you have to have a majority, but the rules to the convention have to be ratified by the convention on the opening of the convention on Monday night. So if you wanted to change the rule from a majority to a plurality, you would bring it up as a minority report in the rules committee. You would bring it to the floor of the convention and then try to get a majority. So in other words, if you have a plurality going in, it's going to be sort of hard to change the rule because you need a majority to vote for the change in the rule. So if no one wins a majority of delegates in the first round, that means we have something called a contested or brokered convention where negotiations then begin. What does that look like? Well, there's there's a couple different scenarios out there. The first one is that a candidate ends the primaries in June, just say 100 delegates short of the magic number. My guess is that at that point, between June and July 13th, when the Democrats meet in Milwaukee, there will be lots of uh, discussion and lots of wheeling and dealing and lots of phone calls and meetings. And my guess is that the candidate who has a, a big size plurality will, in fact, get to a majority. The second scenario is that come June, you've got three candidates kind of closely bunched together, you know, with nobody with a very big lead and everybody still in the mix. At that point, you will also engage in a lot of deal-making and telephone calling, et cetera, and maybe someone will get the first ballot number before they go to Milwaukee, or they might have to actually go through a first ballot and wait until the second ballot at where the superdelegates would be the tiebreakers. So those that's sort of the way to think about it. You know, it's interesting that a lot of people, particularly young people, have said, well, how do you do this? And it it made me sort of sad because I realized that our politics is so polarized these days that the younger generation has never actually seen just political negotiations, which 
have gone on for centuries in our country and in other democracies. I mean, what will happen if no one has a majority will be a series of complex negotiations between candidates and between candidates and other candidates, between candidates and delegates, between candidates and powerful groups in the party like labor unions or teachers unions or civil rights groups, and that will work itself out. People did used to negotiate all the time. <laughs> Have we ever seen a contested convention before then in history? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lots of them. I mean, in 1976, Governor Ronald Reagan tried to take the convention away from President Gerald Ford. In 1980, Senator Ted Kennedy tried to take the convention away from President Jimmy Carter. In 2016, the never-Trumpers tried to keep Donald Trump from getting a first ballot in Cleveland at their convention. So, yeah, we've we definitely have seen a lot of this. One big reason why we're talking about delegates is that even though the primary season stretches from February to June, this one day of voting, Super Tuesday, will decide a sizable portion of the delegate math. So why is there one big day like this? Why does Super Tuesday, as we know it, exist? When the system changed from basically a semi-public system to a system that was dominated by binding primaries, that was the big difference between 68 and 72. It became, again, a, a system that was unique in the American electoral system because it wasn't one election on one day. It was actually a sequence of elections, right, taking place from February to June. Well, as that sequence matured, people realized that, wow, being first in that sequence got you a lot of attention. First of all, winning early was very valuable. As we've seen, it's given Senator Sanders a great boost nationally. And the states that were early got lots and lots of attention. Not surprisingly, lots of states tried to be first. Well, that's kind of impossible, right? You can't all be first. So the Democrats, followed by the Republicans, established what's known as a window. And they said, no one can have their primary or first-tier caucus prior to the first Tuesday in March. And then they proceeded to make certain exceptions. So that first Tuesday in March became the starting point for both political parties. And hard as it may be to believe in this day and age when the parties can't seem to agree on anything, the two parties over time have agreed on the first Tuesday in March being the starting point, and they've agreed that four small states would be allowed to go early, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. So for the last several cycles, that's basically been uh, the situation in the nomination race. Do the same states always vote on each Super Tuesday every four years? How many states is it this year? This year it's 14 states, and the big new participant is California, which moved its primary up. It has not had an early primary since 2000. A lot of this is not centrally dictated, other than when you can start. So then what are you watching for on Super Tuesday? I will be watching for the delegate count, how many delegates 
are apportioned to the candidates after Super Tuesday. And we may not know that until the day after because California is in a different time zone and, and it's going to take a while to sort, sort out the votes and the delegates. The second thing I'll be watching for are what is the difference, what is the spread between the first place finisher and the next finisher? Is somebody running away with it or is it still a race? And the third thing will be how many candidates really underperform. Don't make the 15% threshold and get very, very few delegates because those are candidates you can expect to drop out if, if not the day after Super Tuesday, you know, in the weeks to come. So then after Super Tuesday, how can candidates strategize to make sure they capture the most remaining delegates as possible? Which states come into focus at that point? Well, there's still a lot of big states after that. You have Illinois and Ohio and Michigan coming after that. Later on in the spring, you have Pennsylvania and New York. New Jersey usually is at the very end in early June. So there are still a lot of big states. And you have to look very carefully at the districts within those states where you think you can win the most delegates. And that is a tough thing to do. But if you're not running a delegate race at that point, you're really not in the race. All right, Elaine, thank you so much for your time. Oh, well, thank you. This has been another episode of Can You Do That? If you have questions on your mind about the 2020 election, send them to us at wapo.st slash 2020questions. That's wapo.st slash 2020questions. We'll take your questions and try to answer them on the show. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the generous Carol Alderman with help from Ariel Plotnick, design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. The original version of this episode incorrectly said that Super Tuesday is on March 2nd. It is on March 3rd. The audio has been changed to reflect that correction. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Now.